Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Sudanese by way of D.C., Safia El Hilo is the author of The January Children and Home is Not a Country, and co-editor of the anthology Halal If You Hear Me, winner of the Sillerman First Book Prize for African Poets, the Arab American Book Award, and the Burnell International African Poetry Prize, she is also the recipient of a Kaveh Kanem Fellowship, a Wallace Stegner Fellowship from Stanford University, and a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation. Her work has appeared in Poetry Magazine, The Atlantic, and the Academy of American Poets Poem A Day series, among others. Safia, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you. I first became aware of your poetry at a reading where you shared the stage with Olivia Gatwood and immediately ordered your books. What struck me was how effectively you had the audience leaning in to catch every word and how you weave together storytelling and the creation of characters with rich poetic imagery and abstraction. What role does reciting your poetry play during the writing process? Um, thank you, first of all. Thank you for coming to the show. It was a lot of fun. Um, I started out as a youth slam poet. So my background is in spoken word and in performance poetry. Um, the like foundation of any formal training I had as a poet started out in performance. So I think for as long as I've had a relationship to writing poetry, I have had a relationship to reading my poems out loud. Um, and it, I almost feel smarter as a listener of my own poems um, than I do as a reader of the poems when I'm in the drafting process. So usually the way it goes is I'll you know, type out my little draft and then it will look fine. And then I'll start reading it out loud and my ear will catch things that my eye had no idea about. Um, and usually a few drafts later, when I think I've taken the poem as far as it can go, the true final stage in the editing, which has kind of been put on hold for a lot of the pandemic, is I feel like I never truly hear a poem until I read it out loud to an audience, preferably strangers. Um, it's something about trying to hear it through the ear of someone who might not entirely get my context or where I'm coming from, um, kind of sharpens my own ear to a more critical ear. And then I'm able to catch things that I'd maybe let off the hook up until that point. It's so true. Being able to do readings now myself, I, I just, uh, I hear my poems differently when I'm under the pressure to perform publicly, where you get potentially some feedback from the audience and just, you're just on in a different way than if you're just standing in front of a mirror. But for those that don't have the opportunity to speak in front of an audience, start by speaking in front of a mirror or to your family. It is so true. Poems have two forms, the poem, the poem on the page and the poem that you recite in here. So that's wonderful advice for, for budding poets. In the poem, Yasmin, you write, I split from my parallel self. I split from the girl I also could have been. Girls That Never Die includes several contrapuntal poems, and Yasmin is one of my favorites. The form is so perfectly suited to the theme of the poem. What is your approach to making challenging forms like this work so that the form doesn't overwhelm the poetry? So my first book of poems, uh, which is called The January Children, had been a book that I felt like I'd been writing it one way or another my whole life up until that point. And so it's not that it was necessarily an easy book to write, but it was, um, it held my hand a lot. So every time I sat down to write, I had a loose sense of what I was writing towards or about. Um, and around that time, I wasn't thinking too hard about inherited forms or anything like that. And then after I finished that book, 
I kind of didn't know what to do with myself. Um, I think maybe the plan was never to finish that book and then I finished it. So I had to spend a couple years reteaching myself to write a poem, um, especially without having the, the January Children is a project book and it has a lot of conceits and things that kind of hold it together. And that made it so that every time I sat down to write, I, you know, I had a prompt essentially. And after that, it kind of felt like for the first time in my life, I was like, what do I have to write poetry about? I, I exercised all of my obsessions. So form was my way back into poetry in a way that felt a little safer, a little, you know, the stakes were a little lower because I got to just set myself and exercise in form and be very gentle with myself. And when the whatever Ghazal sonnet inevitably failed, I could be a little kinder with myself and not be like, this poem doesn't work because I personally am a failure. Um, it was because I'd never written a sonnet before or whatever. And I really appreciated just the, the way the constraints activated my imagination. Um, I think the freedom of free verse at that point was just, I was overwhelmed by choice, this idea that I could do anything. Anything felt too much. I kind of felt like a newborn baby poet that was very easily overstimulated. And so by eliminating a lot of those options and being like, no, it can only behave like this. What can I do within those constraints? Just really, um, it just felt like a really safe and generative environment to find my way back into a poem. And then because that's just kind of what I've been up to the past few years, inevitably there are a lot of poems that are in inherited forms in Girls That Never Die. Um, the Contrapuntal in particular was because I spent a lot of time obsessed with Tahimba Jess's book, Olio, and just trying to like figure out the magic trick behind how to make the contrapuntal work. Um, and I really appreciate the contrapuntal in particular because it feels like it takes me down to like the true essence of what it is to write a poem where you really have to sit down and measure every single word and make sure it works. There are no casual words in a contrapuntal because it has to work up and down. It has to work across. And so I can't just be like, okay, this is almost the right word. Let me just throw it in here anyway and keep it going. So it really was like constructing a poem brick by brick, word by word. And I really appreciated the slowness of that because I... I just wanted time and space to like luxuriate in just like the basic elements of what it meant to write a poem again. Um, and the contrapuntal felt like just the a quintessential slow word by word, thoughtful, like poem making experience. No, it's interesting how you, 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 you mentioned that the constraint also took a little bit of the pressure off. And uh, even though the forms are very difficult and they're challenging in many different ways. And uh, A.E. Stallings, when I spoke to her, and she's wonderful at received forms, you know, she said that the reason she does so many received forms is because it takes one of the decisions off the table and she can focus on other things. And I hadn't really ever thought of it that way. And I challenged myself to tackle some forms that because I'm mostly free verse, but I tackled some forms and I found, yeah, you're right, actually with the right. And it sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes ultimately the poem is what it needs to be. But um, I loved how you, you described the transition from your first book to using form as a way to free yourself. That's, that's even though they're constrained, it's, that's beautiful. So Yasmin is also a central character in your wonderful book, Home is Not a Country, which I just read last week. Like all wonderfully drawn characters, I missed Yasmin after finishing the book. What was the origin of the character and what did you learn about yourself while creating Yasmin? So in Home is Not a Country, because it's a novel and, and coming to the novel as a poet, I felt like up until that point, I hadn't been allowed to just make things up. And so I was really excited to get to the novel space and start making things up. But then the first thing I did is give this character the actual name that I almost was given. Um, at first it was a placeholder and I thought I would come back to it, but then it just, you know, really dug its heels in. So 
one of the like handful of autobiographical elements that I lent to that novel, which, you know, none of the story is autobiographical. Um, a handful of the details I borrowed from my real life, the, you know, unnamed culture and country in the book are based on my experience of being Sudanese and being in Sudan, uh, instead of being like, this is actual Sudan or, you know, a blanket statement about Sudaneseness. But um, the starting point in trying to envision the story that became the novel is one of the like particular textures of my diasporic experience is my whole life I've been obsessed with the alternate version of the story without this like, uh, you know, original rupture from which my whole life springs. If my family had not left Sudan, if I had been born there, raised there, never left, what would be different? What would be the same? You know, a lot of questions about like, what is my essential personhood and what is like a consequence of my various experiences and traumas and ruptures. Um, and especially when I was younger, I really found myself continually measuring myself up against this kind of fictional alternate version of myself who was more Sudanese and spoke better Arabic and just like overall just had it together more than I did. And it was a real kind of test in my particular coming of age to learn to just exercise that alternate version of myself and be like, there is no alternate version. There is no more Sudanese version of myself or whatever. This is, you know, the hand I've been dealt. And also I have some agency in how it all goes down. I get to have as much of, of a relationship to Sudan as I choose to have it kind of, I do have the choice to belong or not belong or to participate or not participate. I'm not like at the mercy of, you know, capital I immigration, you know, it's, um, culture I think is a little more nebulous and, and not so beholden to geography and things like that. And so I got to kind of experience the agency of my sudanese as a choice and as a series of decisions and a series of kind of more active and agent belongings. Um, and so in that process, my personal Yasmin disappeared and was exercised. And so in making this novel, I wanted to kind of, in a way different set of events, I, I, obviously I personally did not time travel, but I wanted to kind of recreate the findings of that process um, and recreate for a fictionalized diasporic character the process of first obsession and then exorcism of this perfect idealized alternate non-diasporic self. You know, there's two things I walked away with from the book was, first of all, it could only have been written by a poet. And I thought of Michael Landace, who is a wonderful poet, and his books could only have been written by someone with that poetic obsession with looking at every word. And the other thing that I walked away from was, and we're going to talk mostly about your new book, but I had to ask about it because I just read it and it was so wonderful, is that the young adult books I find can be really, really good because they're necessarily a little bit tighter, a little bit shorter a little bit less overblown. And I have read some wonderful young adult books that I've reread as adults, as an adult and gone, wow, this is a fantastic book where it had a bit of a constraint because of the audience. And that actually enhanced the book and it, it forced editorial choices. So I think this is a, a great example. And I also think I'm very, I'm very tempted now to find a way to do purely imaginative poetry that's not so tied to my personal self because yes that let, gives you a lot of freedom because there I'm sure in the back of your mind there's a you're always thinking is a family member going to read this and uh, you know you don't want to be too constrained by that but um, so just a wonderful book so that's not the core of this interview but I had to had to bring it up Thank you So in many of your poems you use I'm going to go now very detailed a very detailed point. In many of your poems, you use ampersands to string together phrases. Profanity is one of several examples. You write, A stranger blows a wet tobacco kiss through the window of my taxi, and I deploy my meager weapons. Dog. Pig. Donkey. 
and finally my crown jewel. I pass my tongue across my teeth, crane my neck out about my window, and call your mother's. The word and is replaced by ampersands. In other poems, you write out and. You also bracket words and use white space. I know from my experience as a poet that every word, sound, phrase, use of punctuation is intentional. Share your thought process for this subtle detail, when you choose to use an ampersand and when you use the full word and. So spelling out the full word and is a very new development Mm. in my poems. I kind of, um, before three drafts into trying to crack Girls That Never Die, my poems, I think sort of without exception, were all written in lowercase, ampersand instead of the spelled out word and, and sejuras instead of more conventional punctuation. And I think the the ampersand specifically was about economy for me. I just, um, I'm trying to figure out a way to say the thing in as few words as possible. And what I like about the ampersand, which kind of, I think, really lends itself to a poem, is it's a very tiny little symbol that contains a whole idea behind Mm -hmm. it, a whole word behind it. And it takes up, you know, this much space on a line, which is great, Um, especially when I want a poem to be shaped in a very particular way. It kind of helps the shape and the length of the line feel more malleable to have something so tiny, especially with a word like and that tends to come up a lot. In the newer poems that don't use the ampersands and that do capitalize and that do punctuate, I, um, my impulse with the subject matter in this book at first was to speak very quietly and, you know, Mm. hope that no one would actually hear what I was saying because it's scary and embarrassing and vulnerable. And so a lot of the early drafts of those poems are lowercase, ampersand, sejura. And the sejura I like for the way it introduces silence to a poem and the Mm. way it kind of quiets down just the whole climate inside the poem and the way it introduces hesitation to the poem. So all of the things that I used to like and prefer in a poem presented kind of a problem in the newer poems I was trying to write because, you know, here come these poems where I'm saying really terrifying, vulnerable things that I would like to be able to say quietly, but that kind of defeats the whole point of saying them in the first place. And so if I'm really going to be about it and talk about this stuff, I need to speak clearly and loudly and use capital letters and crisp it up by using traditional punctuation and spell out my ands to take up as much space as possible with these poems, which is very counterintuitive. And I thought they were ugly for a really long time. The word and is just so odd to look at, especially after years, just like getting so used to the ampersand. But it really, all of like my, my quieting devices had to go out the window for a lot of the poems in this book. So the ones that do use the ampersand, I think this is true across the board, that's how you can tell it's an older poem mm-hmm. from the, the set of poems that ended up in the book. And then the ones that start to pull up with capital letters and punctuation and the spelled out ands, that's kind of a, a marker of some of the later poems that I finally convinced myself to write. And I think the other thing is the ampersand in particular is a beautifully designed thing. Whereas the period, semicolon, I mean, they're functional. Whereas the ampersand is this flourish, you know, it's It's a little flourish. Yes. It's, it's a really is a beautiful, and I, I can relate to your transition from all lowercase, very minimal to no punctuation, which I went through as well. And I think it's because E. Cummings was the poet that got me excited about poetry when I had a creative writing teacher in 10th grade who didn't, you know, hit us over the head with the classics that were dated and heart and impenetrable for teenagers. And as a result, I was like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to go all in all lowercase, almost no punctuation. And then I worked with a poetry coach over the last year and uh, someone I interviewed on the podcast. And he said, well, I love the way you use a lowercase in some places and other places. What if I were to do this? Mm. And he just took the poem and tweaked it. And he said, you know, I think you need to give the reader a little bit more help. 
and in certain poems. And it really opened my eyes. It's like I had this whole new palette. It's like I went off to an art store and came back with this whole new set of brushes and paints. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I can work. And now sometimes I go all lowercase, sometimes I don't. And it's a, it's intentional versus being almost a religious decision. Yeah. Before. Um, it got to the point where it felt like I was, it wasn't an intentional decision anymore to mm-hmm. write all in lowercase. It was just like, this is how I write a poem. So that's that. Um, and it didn't become about serving the individual poem anymore. It also, I think just because of a lot of who the people are in this book, I'm like speaking from an intersection and a set of experiences that I think historically are very easy to look away from and to turn away from or to kind of turn the volume down on or be like, this isn't important. And so with with a lot of the poems, I didn't want to give my reader the chance to opt out, to be like, oh, I can't read this. This is, you know, it's not legible. It's all lowercase. There are all these ampersands, all these scissors. What even is going on? So to be like, here's a paragraph. Now it's your excuse. You know, now you can't look away. Um, I'm spelling it out. So it it all, I think, was was an attempt to just like speak as clearly as I could and remove all of the things that I had in place that, you know, were maybe very stylish, but that I would sometimes sacrifice clarity or volume uh, for this other thing, which was very important to me at a certain point in my writing life and which now, I'm not even saying that I've outgrown it or anything, but it's just not what my poems are trying to do right now. But it's nice to have it be a tool among many tools instead of being like, this is the only way I write a poem. Absolutely. I can totally relate to what you just shared there. And I loved your discussion of volume. So your books have been so impactful to me because of how powerfully you convey experiences that I have not personally experienced. My life experience is a white, cis, American, tall, male. I mean, I check every privilege box. It's particularly, particularly powerful examples are the pair of infibulation study poems and the poem 1000, which I totally love that poem, which includes the lines, I make up names to hand to strangers at parties. I trim years from my age and share without being asked that I am 15, 17, and no one blinks. No one stops wanting. What have you learned from how your audience experiences your poetry, both those with a background similar to yours and those with completely different backgrounds? So my hope for how it feels to read a poem of mine is every time I sit down to write a poem, I'm talking to a very particular set of people. I'm not really, I don't really know how to write like an outward facing kind of ambassadorial poem. So I like to try to write as if I am speaking to someone who already knows exactly what I'm talking about and who shares all my intersections and who knows how it feels. And and then we're just having a conversation um, with that kind of fluency and that particular, it feels so intimate to not explain. It feels so intimate to talk to someone like they already know what you mean. And it's a way of drawing someone in. Sometimes, you know, I'll be talking to someone and will not have the entire context for what they're talking about. But the fact that they believe I do makes me feel closer to them. And so my hope is that the people that I'm speaking directly to know that I'm speaking directly to them and receive it. And everyone else, my hope is that they feel like they're eavesdropping on a really interesting Mm. conversation where maybe they don't have the entirety of the context and maybe not all the references are immediately familiar or anything like that. But, you know, have you ever been on like, I don't know, like a a plane or the bus or something and someone like a few seats ahead of you is on the phone like fighting with their partner and they're really, you know, you you can't really hear what's happening on the other side, but you know something spicy is happening. And it's even just that one half of the conversation is so interesting and so engaging and I kind of want my poems to feel that way too. Like you're kind of tuning in to one half of like a phone conversation or something and maybe using your imagination to piece together the rest or the redactions and the erasures and the silences are also compelling and are maybe emphasizing what is being said with what isn't being said. And it also, you know, I 
have the great privilege of being a poet in the age of Google. And so I can say Abdel Halim Hafiz and someone doesn't get it, they don't get it. If someone doesn't get it but wants to, there is somewhere that they can figure that out. And it's no longer my job to be like, here is like, you know, an index of all of my references and an explanation. I love the way you described it as a form of eavesdropping. And um, I've actually have a, I'm, I'm in the back of my mind as a future project will be a poem or set of poems based on phrases I overhear. And then I take them in different places. I heard a couple the other day, which I was in too much of a rush to write down. And I'm like, what they planted the seed where, okay, I'm going to keep my ears open and use that as prompts. So I think that's a wonderful way of describing the way you, you write to a community and you also allow the eavesdropper the ability to relate to and learn something. I, I love that. And that actually leads yeah. to my next question, which, you know, your poetry incorporates Arabic to a degree. And as an English only speaker, I'm immediately curious using both the context of the poem and translation apps to get a small sense of the language. Uh, how do you approach incorporating Arabic into your poetry with a mix of uni and multilingual readers? Is it really the same as you just described before you're you're communicating to someone who would understand and for someone who doesn't they they'll be okay or they can get curious and go find out more yeah i think every poem i write exists in two versions there is the version to be read by the person who knows exactly what i'm talking about and who speaks all of my languages and understands all of my contexts and shares all my intersections that's, you know, version A of the poem. And then my hope is that version B of the poem for someone who maybe, who doesn't speak Arabic or doesn't read Arabic or doesn't fully understand everything I'm talking about, there is still enough in the poem, my hope, is that there's still enough in the poem that is compelling and interesting. And so there is still something for that person, even if it's not the full extent of the poem, you know? It's like, I'm setting a buffet, some people have dietary restrictions. Some people don't. Hopefully someone, <laughs> hopefully everyone still gets something delicious to eat. Well, I think you do that extremely effectively. And it, it made me curious. And I went off, like you said, and Googled a um, number of things uh, through the experiences that you share. In your book, The January Children, you write so beautifully. And what is a country but the drawing of a line? I draw thick black lines around my eyes, and they are a country. And thick red lines around my lips, and they are a country. And the knife that chops the onion draws a smooth line through my finger, and that is a country. Many of your poems explore the fluidity of home and draw from your experiences real and imagined in Sudan, the U.S., and beyond. How do you hope your your poetry will affect readers, and how has writing these poems changed you? So a lot of these poems are a record of my own kind of evolving relationship to belonging and home and all that. But I, I think the word home to me feels like shorthand for some ideas around belonging and safety and context and love and things like that. And I don't know who has ever gotten that feeling from the nation state, but surely not me. So for a long time, I think I, um, there were all these things that hurt me and that troubled me and that didn't feel quite right. And I felt like I, I got into my head that everything would feel better if only I could figure out where I was from. And by where I was from, I meant a specific country, you know, uh, if I felt like I were entirely Sudanese or entirely American or whatever, whatever both of those things even mean, because that doesn't exist as a concept actually. But as a younger person, I got into my head that if I could entirely be one or the other just everything else would be okay and in that fixation and that obsession I really failed to appreciate and acknowledge all of the ways that I did belong and all of the communities that had taken just such beautiful care of me and had loved me and had nurtured me and had offered me context and home and belonging and things like that and were all the more powerful for being kind of handmade, you know, homemade. It wasn't, no one delineated a border and said, okay, now all of you belong to each other, figure it out. <laughs> it was, um, you know, I grew up in a very Sudanese 
community in Washington, D.C. There are a lot of Sudanese people in D.C., a lot of East Africans in general. And there kind of were several different waves of migration. But what I found so beautiful is that those people sought each other out and didn't like entirely recreate what it was to be in Sudan, you know, but built like a hybrid cultural experience that then the next generation could be raised into. And so I think that's the reason I feel so Sudanese. I never lived in Sudan. I visited a lot, but as far as like, have I ever, I don't know, attended school in Sudan? Have I ever been there for more than three months at a time? No. And yet the fact that I feel so Sudanese and such a profound belonging to Sudanese-ness has to do with the people that like removed the idea of Sudanese-ness from the geographical fact of Sudan and made it feel more agent and chosen. And that I think is just a really helpful way for me to think about the world and think about my own identities and think about my own choices, you know? Like some white man many years ago, like drew a bunch of lines on a map and that is supposed to say something about like me as a person, you know? So it's, it's just more helpful and, and brings me more peace to feel like I have a say in like choosing what I mean when I say my people or my home. You know, I was as I was reading that 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 excerpt. The uh, it, when I first read it, uh, it, it just so struck me because I think about my wife's Italian. Her parents immigrated to Canada, and I was just up in Toronto for the last week. And there's, if you think about Toronto in particular, is this very uh, rich multicultural city? There, there are these. Yeah, the the if you take the border of Italy, you could kind of extend it and draw this border inside Toronto because it has a, an enormous. Uh, Italian population. There's also an enormous uh, population from the Caribbeans in Toronto, and you could extend the Caribbean and put lines. So it's really it'd be interesting if there was a map drawn that showed where these communities live globally, and that's the country, not the arbitrary, like you said, drawn off on a map in many cases arbitrarily, but the country is really that extension of the communities all around the world. Anyways, that's stuck in my head now. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Uh, so just one more question before you get to share your poetry. Uh, several of your poems share the same name. This is going back to something we were talking about uh, before this started. Share the same name and are spread across the book. Girls That Never Die and Taxonomy are two examples. After finishing the book, I went back and read those threads in sequence as individual long poems. I encourage people to do that. Were these written at the same time as units or were the connections between these poems discovered during the process of editing the poems into a book? Well, thank you for going back and reading them as long poems because there's four drafts ago, the whole book Girls That Never Die was meant to be a book-length poem that did not work, uh, crashed and burned. <laughs> but there were some pieces that I salvaged from that particular experiment, which when they were folded into the larger manuscript worked better as standalone poems, but they, I still felt the, like their ghost relationship to mm -hmm. each other. So the shared title is kind of, I don't know, just like a tribute to a moment where they used to all be a single poem. Some of them though, in, when I was going through the book and editing, there were some poems that were not written during that initial book length poem stage but that felt like they had a relationship to, you know, the taxonomy poems or the girls in never die poems. So those got added in later, but for the most part, um, you got it exactly right. The ones with the shared title once upon a time were one big monster poem. Well, they certainly did read like that. So I'm really, I'm really glad I asked that question because I was curious. All right. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read selections from girls that never die. Taxonomy. I go to meet the poem and it will not meet me so long as I believe I am owed. I call it by the name I learned first, Shir, which always sounds to me like Shad. Without their vowels, they are the same, the poem and my brother's hair. 
These days, the longest I've seen it since we were children. It curls around his ears, and for that sweetness, I have no name. Though I must still write it down, because otherwise I will forget, as I have forgotten so many others. Words, I mean, and also the suffix built in to mark my labors. Specter, daughter, agent noun attached to the verb of my origins. A sheet dotted with blood, a thumbprint against the dotted line. And even if I am not tender, I must tend. And though I am only part water, I wait. And like any number, I numb my vulgar parts. The word as I learned it first just means girl. My mother's girl, grandmother's grand girl, garland of Egyptian jasmine. We call my grandmother's grandmother Nana, which might not be her real name, but I never thought to ask. And before hers, the names for me go silent. And I do not know what to call those women. My great-grandothers, my agents, my tender nouns. The name I am owed will not meet me. Though I fast until the corners of the room crowd with specters. Though my body swells with the volumes of this blood. Though I spilled it. Though I read that family honor is in the body of the girl. I spilled it. I overflowed and was called a flower. I grew up mapless and was pointed to a maple tree. I shrank my own body until the blood stopped coming, until I dropped my every suffix and woke up to the sheets still white. Girls that never die. Perhaps a cow, some gold for a girl carried kicking from her father's house, from her father's name, and slung over a shoulder, and passed to another, whose belonging will name her, will give her form, girl like water, shapeless without the bowl, girl, perhaps cut, perhaps in the pharaonic way, sent off to be split, girl as paintbrush, sent off to stain a sheet, Perhaps by cover of night, perhaps the husband is old and the girl a child, legs clamped tight as if by stitching, perhaps his brothers, perhaps his cousins, men as ropes, as chains, brought in to peel the girl like young fruit, the pith still bitter, still clinging to the rind. Summer Triangle. Say I formed a body of clay around a clot of dried blood. I formed a body of dirt and water. I formed a body around red earth and cracked clay. I formed a body polluted by want, most of it not mine. I formed a body purified by name, washed in the white water of my grandfather's blind left eye, washed with my grandmother's feet in ablution. I formed a body to be left behind, to be unzipped and discarded, to return to perfumed aunts, arranged in jagged sleep, waking only to tie systems of jasmine into my torn hair. I formed a body suspended in utterance, named and undone and named again, girl, lacuna, specter, throat, throat, say it, bloodstain, Sheet, name it. I formed a body darkened by blood, the moon tugging its irons from my shameful parts. I formed a body and swam in elegant laps in rising water, temperate as the first womb, and always ships darkening the banks like blood, and always water dividing the world, God's country clotting out between my legs like silk. Thank you so much for reading those selections and for asking me to choose them, which was an incredibly hard decision. So the summer triangle is so powerfully surreal with lines such as I form a body suspended in utterance, named and undone and named again. I, I read this poem over and over and terrific poems will do that too. You'll finish and you just have to read them again and walk away and read them again and read it out loud, which I did to my wife. Where did this poem begin? 
what were the words or phrases that got you started? If you remember, I realize it's a tough question because po- books, poetry books are inevitably years in the making. And what was the evolution of that beginning into a finished poem? Um, so Summer Triangle is actually an ecrastic poem. It was written specifically um, in response to a piece by the artist Laura Christensen. And th- that's how it got its title. Her piece originally was called Summer Triangle. She ended up changing the name to To Dwell Midst the Waves. And it was a commission for a book by Laura Christensen, which is like a series of found vintage photographs that she would reimagine. So the book is called Then Again, uh, hold on, let me not paraphrase. Then Again, Vintage Photography Reimagined by One Artist and 31 Writers. So the image that I chose from the, the ones she sent me to choose from was very surreal and kind of immediately felt like a dreamscape. And if I remember it correctly, I haven't looked at the photograph in years, but there were two figures in it, two women, I believe, two femme figures in the the image. And there was like a tenderness and a, a familiarity between them. And I was thinking a lot, you know, I was like, deep in the throes of writing this book at that point. So I only had but a handful of things that I was thinking about. And I was thinking about all different sorts of inheritances and intergenerational trauma and inherited shame and inherited internalized misogyny and things like that. And was thinking about a lot of the ways in which like girl kids are raised with just this kind of like really specific mix of like tender tenderness and nurturing and also shame um, and how it's like introduced so early and kind of mixed in with the tenderness and mixed in with the nurturing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the images of like the aunts arranging Jasmine into the speaker's hair and things like that, um, but the hair is torn. So I wanted the that combination of of tenderness and tending and also violence to be contained in a lot of the images in that poem. And also for the body in that poem to just feel in flux and and constantly, like every time you try and look at it too closely, it turns into something else. Um, Every time you try and name it, it mutates into something else and is always sort of just out of reach um, is kind of the, the feeling I wanted to evoke. Well, in Girls That uh, that Never Die and many of the other poems in this book, you deal with subject matter that is is pretty heavy. Um, and yet, like you talked about earlier, how you were all lowercase and little punctuation to almost whisper these things. And now you've you're you've adjusted your style to pronounce them where they where they should be pronounced. And I've heard in open mics where you get a random mix of poets. Uh, you'll occasionally get the poet that has is going through a trauma, drug addiction, and and they they are using poetry in a very effective way to to get that out of them. Although the poetry in some cases I feel is just so loud, it almost it's hard to hear that those important things. And you've have this extraordinary ability to generate empathy with your poems without a sledgehammer saying this. And there was a cutter, a Streeby, who's a poet I spoke to a, a, a few weeks ago on the podcast. You know, he, he doesn't like poetry where it's banging on the head. Here's the message and I'm going to bash it. You don't do that. And yet I think it's much more effective. Is that something that you consciously think about, um, about how to meter uh, what you're saying so that it can be heard? I don't know how conscious it is, but it is something I've been aware of because when I was a younger poet, the primary outlet that I was writing poetry for was the slam. Um, so it was for competition. You only had a set amount of time to like get what you were trying to say to the audience. And I didn't, you know, I had an okay time in the slam. In my early years, I was on a bunch of like weird teams with like a bunch of other weirdos like me and we were not trying to like win the competition we were just trying to like 
make friends and express ourselves. Um, and then when I got to college, I was also on slam teams, but it was the first time I got to experience being on teams where uh, people cared about the competition. Like my teammates wanted to win, which was not the case of like my youth teammates. And so I came from a space of being encouraged to write these like really experimental, odd poems that no one was ever asking me what my poem was about. Um, it was all just vibes, honestly, to like get into the space where I was being asked to like boil my poem down to its most obvious parts so that someone would know clearly what the poem was like about, which is still a question that stresses me out in a poem. I don't know what any of my poetry is about. I don't know what anything is about. Who who does? And so after a couple years experiencing slam in that way and just um, feeling kind of stifled by that, that was a moment where the constraints were not so generative mm. for me, where I felt like I was being asked to put aside all of the things that I enjoyed about writing poetry. And instead I was being asked to like, like mine my traumas and then like talk about them in a way that would score well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, and you know, I came to writing poems, I guess, cause I was like a sad teen or whatever, but also like, it's really fun. It's really cool to make something, you know? And my relationship to poems really was not great during that time because I was being made to feel like the most interesting things about me were the things that hurt me the most. And also like I had to make a decision between wanting to be like a happy person or write poetry. And, you know, a lot of it would be stuff that like I had processed in my like limited ability to do so in like my pre-therapy youth, you know, but like had processed a lot of that stuff and put it away and was being asked to bring it back out to like maybe like tug on a judge's heartstrings at a poetry slam and get a high score and like win a slam, you know? And so I really was not enjoying myself and I did not enjoy the poems that I was writing at that time. They just felt incomplete. Mm -hmm. um, like I'd taken out all of the stuff that made me enjoy the feeling of being in the poem and had just left like the bare bones of the aboutness of the thing without getting to pour in like a little slant or a surprising detail or you know, all of the things that make it fun for me. And I realized that if I wanted to keep being a poet, I had to uh, let go of some of those ideas that I was being taught. And so for a while, I decided to make a hard pivot in the complete other directions and was writing poems truly about nothing, you know? <laughs> and so now, you know, there might be some poems that are about nothing in this book, but it's also, I don't know what they're about. They might be about nothing. They might be about everything. There is no, I couldn't tell you what a single poem in this book is about. I can like tell you what I hope it's doing, you know, uh, what it's thinking about, what its concerns are, what its obsessions are, like who the characters are and the image system and the vocabulary. But like what the poem is about is honestly none of my business. I love that you had that, that last line, what the poem's about is none of your business. I had a... Uh poem of mine for my first book that was turned into an animated short film tethered and I, I was inspired by a bell buoy out in the ocean and well what is this bell buoy just trapped there tethered think about all day it's got this important job does it dream of being freed from the tether and so that's what it was I mean about you know that's what it was inspired by which is probably a better way to think about it and then I had a friend of mine was a friend of mine was uh, told me that she thought about her parents who are in their 90s and they can't leave their house, uh, that they're totally happy. The world revolves around their house and they know every squirrel and detail and person that walks their dog. And then the animator, well, she, uh, based in Italy, she thought about uh, the pandemic and being trapped in her apartment in Milan. And the poem wasn't about either of those things. And yet that's how it, it struck uh, both of those readers, and I'm sure other readers in other ways. So it's wonderful that you say that. Well, 
the I know you just had a book come out, so you're going to do all sorts of book just came out related things. Uh, but what are you working on next? What's got you excited uh, in your writing career coming up in the future? Yeah, so I um, I mean, this is temporarily on on pause because um, it's hard to do anything poetry related while launching a book of poems. But I am in revisions right now for a second novel in verse, which probably if I make my deadline will maybe be out next year. And then after that, kind of don't want anyone to say the word book to me for a second (laughs) um, because I also just got back um, a little over a week ago from a month-long writing residency where I was in Amsterdam in like a cute little apartment where I should have been doing my novel revisions, but I decided I just wanted to write loose poems instead, which I haven't gotten to do in so long. You know, just like write something that wasn't for a project or some greater idea. And um, I was doing an email exchange with a friend of mine, uh, the poet Hala Alian, where we were just each trying to write a poem every day and email it to each other. So I just wrote like a bunch of loose first drafts of poems that are not for a book or for publication or for anything other than just like how good it feels to write a poem. And so I hope to spend more time doing that, especially after I turn in my novel revision. I just want to go back to just like the open-ended pleasure of just making a bunch of poems and like maybe one day someone else can see them. But right now it's just so nice that it's just poetry for poetry's sake instead of, uh, you know, the book needs more pages or whatever. (laughs) So it's just so nice. It's, um, it was a good reminder that I just really love writing poems, you know, not for anything, not even like necessarily to read them out loud, even though that's a part of the process, but just that like initial moment of like, the vulnerable, freshly hatched baby draft is a really nice feeling. And it's been a really long time. And so I want to spend more time just in that feeling and like being a beginner again in the space of poems. Well, thank you so much for spending time with the Viola Swings Poetry Podcast. I can't wait to read everything that you've got coming up in the future. I'm you're, you're in my list of writers that I will assume it's going to be great. And if you have a misstep, I'll, I'll accept it and move on to the next one. And, uh, and for listeners, uh, Girls That Never Die and all of Safia's books are wonderful reads. I encourage you to seek them out. Thank you so much. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings. <laughs>